You're listening to Cross Life, the college ministry of Grace Bible Church in Bozeman, Montana. Our current series is Imago Day, a study of how the character of God impacts your daily life. All right, thank you, worship team. Man, those are some good words. Um, I always enjoy singing with you guys. As I was studying uh, for this talk, I came across a site called Holy Mistakes, and it was a collaboration of misprints, I guess you could say, in church newspapers or church bulletins, and I just wanted to read you a few of them. Um, Bertha Belch, a missionary from Africa, will be speaking tonight at Calvary Memorial Church. Come tonight and hear Bertha Belch all the way from Africa. Uh, In one bulletin, it said, the cost for attending the fasting and prayer conference includes meals. Might take a second on that. (laughs) Uh, The sermon this morning, Jesus Walks on Water. The sermon tonight, Searching for Jesus. (laughs) Remember in prayer the many who are sick of our community. (laughs) Don't let worry kill you. Let the church help. (laughs) The senior choir invites any member of the congregation who enjoys sinning to join the choir. Uh, The eighth graders will be presenting Shakespeare's Hamlet in the church basement Friday at 7 p.m. The congregation is invited to attend this tragedy. (laughs) And lastly, Weight Watchers will meet at 7 p.m. at the First Presbyterian Church. Please use the large double door at the side entrance. (laughs) Oh, what a little uh, reviewing would have done for those people. (laughs) Anyways, as we... uh, begin to look at scripture tonight, um, we're going to kind of focus in one text and we're going to kind of focus on one topic. Um, But I'd like to begin by praying. So if you'd bow with me. Heavenly Father, um, Lord, you are good. You are worthy. Um, Lord, we worship you in many ways, Father, by singing um, and by looking into your word, Father. We ask for your grace now that you would uh, allow us to understand. Lord, you would encourage us. Father, would you sanctify us and set us apart? Make us holy, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight we're going to look at one verse uh, in detail and really expand upon that passage. And this is uh, Proverbs 9.10. So as you're turning there, as intro to this, the idea of proverb means to be like. So proverbs are comparisons between common things, things that are ordinary, um, often simple in life, and the most complex truths of the universe the wisdom of God, the fear of God, things that we just can't really understand on our own. They simply take a deep truth and they use language to help us to understand it better. Solomon, um, the author of Proverbs, wrote this book as he pondered this truth. In Ecclesiastes 12, verses 9 and 10, it says that Solomon pondered and searched out and arranged many Proverbs and that he sought to write the words of truth correctly. Thus, that's where we have Proverbs. Um, John MacArthur, in his commentary, says that Proverbs were designed to, one, display the fear of God, and two, to instruct how to live by God's wisdom. Um, And our verse will certainly hit on both of these tonight. Further, before we even consider this, it's important to know what genre of Scripture we're in. Uh, Proverbs falls under the category of poetry, and it's not poetry like like we might think. Roses are red, violets are blue, honey is sweet, and so are you. Um, But this is poetry rather in the word form, how the words are structured. Um, 
they're structured in such a way as to convey the ideas, to relate to the ideas. Um, and often it takes the form of parallelism. Um, and so this, this verse that we're going to look at is a form of parallelism, and specifically it's a synonymous parallelism. So let's just turn there. It'll make sense in a moment. Proverbs 9.10 it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Okay, so I mentioned that this is synonymous in structure, meaning that the first line is echoed in the second line. Okay, so we notice that fear and knowledge are synonymous. The Lord, the Holy One, are paralleled. Wisdom and understanding. And really, I only take the time to point this out because I want us to think critically about how the words relate to one another, what's going on uh, in this passage. Um, beyond that, though, it's important to know what the words mean, what individual words within uh, any given verse in the Bible, just a basic principle of hermeneutics, what the words mean that we're dealing with. So the first I want to examine is this word fear. Um, the Hebrew behind this word fear means reverence or awesomeness, like full of awe. Um, and really, actually, it's best translated as just fear. However, interestingly, uh, fear was often associated with a person's relationship to God. And so we see in Genesis 20, verse 10, uh, Abraham enters a town, and he lies about his wife, who was Sarah. He lies and says that his wife is his sister. And why does he do that? When asked, um, when asked, well, Abraham, why did you lie? He says, because I thought surely there is no fear of God in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. You see, in Abraham's mind, a lack of fear of God is what would have been affiliated with uh, the people's unrighteous acts. A lack of fear of God would have led to their, their sinful actions. And I don't really think it'd be a far stretch to say in general, um, where there's a lack of fear of God, um, there's a lack of adherence to his to his law, to his commandments. Uh, really, there's a lack of relationship when there's not a healthy fear. The next word in Proverbs 9.10 that I want to look at just for a moment is uh, this idea of wisdom and understanding. We see the word wisdom, we see the word understanding. I'll read this again. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Here again, we see wisdom and understanding related. Um, and if you look over at Proverbs chapter 30, I'm going to read verses 2 through 4 that really um, paint this well as well. Verse 2 of chapter 30 says, Surely I am more stupid than any man, and I do not have the understanding of the man. Neither have I learned wisdom, nor do I have knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped the waters in his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name or his son's name? Surely you know. Okay, so we see understanding, wisdom, and knowledge all in reference here to this man's lack of understanding of God, or in this text, his lack of understanding of the Holy One. This writer, possibly in retrospect, knew that wisdom, knowledge, and understanding were rooted in the source of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding himself, God. God is the source of these things. God is the utmost of wisdom. He is the utmost of knowledge. He is the utmost of understanding. You could even say that he is the fulfillment of them. He is these things to the maximum. And we're going to come back to that idea a little bit later. But the third and final consideration of the, the phrasing of Proverbs 9.10, um, really the, the small word study, is this phrase, holy one, and particularly holy, 
um, as an attribute of God. We're going to dive into this and um, spend a little bit of time in what holy means and how it's associated with God. So I would ask, what does holy mean? What does the word holy mean? Holy in itself actually means marked off. It means marked off or withdrawn from common use. Uh, It's derived from the verb to separate or to be separate from. And so God is set apart from the commonalities of this world. He is set apart from the rest of his creation. Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology uh, categorizes God's holiness into two categories. On one part, he says that his holiness means that he is separated from sin. Okay? On, the sec- on the other part, he says his holiness means he's devoted to seeking his own honor. And as examples of this, he might point to things that have to do with God or that show God's uh, glory, uh, such as the tabernacle. Okay? The tabernacle was a place that was separated from sin and evil, and it was set apart for his honor and his glory. Okay? Uh, likewise, he might point to the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a day set aside from common use, and it was a day set aside for God's service and honor and glory. Um, this is how Grudem categorizes his holiness. Erickson, on the other hand, another theologian uh, with one of those great big books that you see sitting around in some of these pastors' offices, um, he categorizes his holiness in a different way. He says, it's really similar though, he says that God's holiness has two parts. Again, One part is that he is unique, so his uniqueness. The other part is that he is absolutely pure or good. Okay, and so in terms of his uniqueness, he would point to a verse like Exodus 15, 11, where it says, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders. Okay, so God's uniqueness. Uh, To display his purity and goodness, he would look at Habakkuk 1, 13, where it indicates that God's holiness disables him from being with sin. It says, Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. And so really, um, I mean, if you take both of these guys and their studies of holiness, and you put them together, we kind of have a common theme, um, that he is absolutely pure pure and good, and that he's absolutely separated from sin, kind of come together in the verse James 1.13, where it says, God cannot be tempted with evil. This is because he's separated from sin. This is because he is absolutely pure and good. He cannot be tempted with evil. Okay, those of you that have studied James before, you know in James 1, it's in the midst of a talk about trials, right? Um, Consider it joy when you encounter trials. It goes on. It talks about temptation. It goes on. And it says, where does temptation come from? Not from God. God doesn't tempt. No, no evil can be with God. Temptation comes from within. Temptation is from our own desires, from our own lusts. And it's interesting to me that in this verse, it says, as a declarative statement, God cannot be tempted with evil. This is how it is. It's not that God overcomes evil or he battles evil or... um, No, he cannot be tempted with evil. Why? Because he is holy. Because God is holy. Well, again, another scholar from the 1600s named Stephen Charnock, um, he said this, if any attribute... This, referring to his holiness, attribute has an excellency above his other perfections. It seems to challenge an excellency above all his other perfections, so it is the glory of all the rest. He goes on to say that should this be tarnished, all the rest would lose their honor and would lose their comfortable effectiveness. You see, guys, God's holiness is not necessarily an attribute in itself, but it's characteristic of all of them. It's really extensive of all of his attributes. 
It denotes the perfection of God in all that he is. Because he is holy, his attributes are holy. And so any thought we have of God, we have to think of that thought as holy, as separate. You could think of any attribute. You could say his wrath, his justice, his omnipresence, his love, his mercy. And you could really prefix any of them with the word holy because in all that God is, he is separate. He is set apart. He is withdrawn from common use. He's unique. Um, He's without sin. All of these things apply to all of his attributes. Now, before we move to see how people have responded to God's holiness, um, how else do we know of God's holiness besides just Grudem and Erickson? Christ, right? Christ. Christ was the exact representation of his nature, as Hebrews tells us. And really, Christ is the last step of the revelation of God's character of who he is. You see, all through, all through Scripture, God is revealing himself. He's revealing himself. He's revealing himself. And then Christ comes as the exact representation of his nature, fully displaying God's attributes and, who, and what God is like. We know that Christ was holy because in Hebrews 4.15, it says he was tempted in all ways and yet without sin. Jesus wasn't scared of sinners. He wasn't scared of sin. In fact, he was often with them. If you look at Luke 7, um, we see Jesus' interaction with a prostitute. Uh, Luke 7, verse 36. It says, Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him, him, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Now if you notice this comment by the Pharisee, it's somewhat revealing that at that time this would not have been normal. He says he would know that she was a sinner, and yet Christ is so holy that he's not defiled by sin. He's not defiled by prostitutes or made unclean. He's not defiled by lepers or made unclean. Christ is perfectly holy. As another example, we know that many times Christ came across demons, legions of demons actually, and yet was unscathed. The demons feared and trembled at the sight of Christ. Um, I'm thinking in particular of a passage where he casts all the demons into the swine and they run off the cliff. Christ was holy. In Peter, it tells us that Christ descended into the, the chamber of the imprisoned spirits and proclaimed the news after he was dead. He died and descended into the abyss, really, um, into the chamber of the imprisoned spirits and proclaimed that he had risen, and yet he was unscathed. He, he is holy, and he's the exact representation of God. Therefore, if we are to have knowledge of the Holy One, it seems as though a good place to start would be uh, to see where we're at with Christ, to know him first and foremost. Well, with that as a foundation of what holiness is, let's look at how people have responded to God's holiness. In the Old Testament in particular, there are a few examples of people that encounter God or God's glory or God's holiness or have a vision. Um, And the first I want to look at is Ezekiel. So if you turn to your Old Testament, 
After Isaiah, after Jeremiah, after Lamentations, we find Ezekiel. We're going to go to chapter 1. This is a really wonderful passage, but um, (laughs) we're just going to do a quick survey. Starting in verse 26 of chapter 1, it says, Now above the expanse there was over their heads something resembling a throne, like lapis lazuli in appearance. And on that which resembled a throne, high up was a figure with the appearance of a man. Then I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upward something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward, I saw something like fire, and there was a radiance around him. As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. This is really classic here. And I guess I say that because sometimes I can sympathize with um, some of these men in Scripture that encounter uh, the Lord's glory. Not that I've encountered it, but um, you can just see a common theme. John in Revelation, Isaiah in Isaiah, Ezekiel here. There's just not words. There's just not words to describe what is going on here, what they're seeing, what, they, what it's happening. What, I mean, listen to some of the phrases Ezekiel just used. He says, glowing metal that looked like fire. He says, and downward I saw something like fire, and there was radiance around him. He says, as the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Ezekiel, he's really just scrambling for words to describe holiness, like God, like whoa, way different than what we're used to. And yet what was his response to this? How did he respond in verse 28? None other than what we might expect encountering God. He fell on his face to worship. Another example uh, that we won't turn to for time's sake, but um, in Exodus 34, verse 6, the Lord passes by Moses and speaks. And then in verse 8, it says that Moses made haste to bow low to the earth and worship. In other words, Moses, as fast as he could, hit the deck in worship. He made haste to bow low to the earth and worship. The holiness that radiates, uh, the glory that radiates from God, immediately in two cases now, has resulted in men just falling to their face in worship. Just utter lowliness. Well, the third account I want to look at that we'll uh, spend a little bit of time in is Isaiah. Many of you are familiar with this. Um, Just to the right of Psalms, Isaiah chapter 6. We will look at verses 1 through 4. Isaiah's vision. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Man, this entire picture is saturated with God's holiness. 
pretty much every detail in this is somehow depicting God's holiness. To start, we see that he's on a throne that is high and exalted so as to signify the separateness, the set-apartness from the commonalities that we're used to. He is above all creation. He is above everything else. Then we're interestingly told that the train of his, his robe fills the temple. Now, you might not understand this. For those of you that were here three years ago now, when Andy taught on this, he explained it well. But a train um, is that which, ladies, forgive me if I'm not perfectly correct on this, but <laughs> I believe it's that which trails uh, a queen, potentially a bride on a wedding, and it signifies like honor. Am I correct? Okay, yeah, it signifies honor. Okay, so imagine queens that you might know. Uh, queens in other countries, right? As they're walking, there's a train that follows them on the red carpet maybe or whatever. Okay, and the length of this train um, is in relationship to how worthy they are or what sort of honor they are to receive. And so what are we told of God's train? What are we told of God's train? We're told that it fills the temple. It doesn't say it's 100 feet long. No, it fills the temple. It fills the entire temple. Further, in verse 2, we see that seraphim are explained to have six wings, two of which cover their eyes, because they don't dare look upon the holiness of God, two of which cover their feet, so as to signify their humility, their lowliness, um, their submission. And then two of them are for service. Two of them are their wings that they can fly with and serve the Lord. So we've got four out of worship and reverence and two out of, out of service. And yet, what is these creatures' role? What is the seraphim's purpose? What do they do? One says to the other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled or full with his glory. You know what's interesting is if you look at Revelation, uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later and really into the end times, uh, these seraphim are still saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Another interesting uh, bit about this phrase, holy, 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 uh, I believe it's called the trihagion. And it's an expression that's meant to put supreme emphasis on something. And so it's like taking holy to the power of three. Um, Another aspect of this trihagion that's unique is that it's said three times. And what do we know of our God? Well, he's a triune God. Holy, holy, holy. And so either way you have it, this this is... really uplifting God's holiness. God, as a, His holiness, His set-apartness. We don't see in Scripture, love, love, love. Is God love? Yes, He is love. But it doesn't say that. We don't see mercy, mercy, mercy. We don't see just, 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 or wrath, wrath, wrath. We see holy, holy, holy more than one time. Now, as we think back to Proverbs 9.10, um, does this help us to to maybe understand and see why God is to be feared. Why there should be a healthy fear of the Lord. Guys, he's so holy that his train fills the temple. He's so holy that seraphim are made to cry out this very statement of his holiness. He's so holy that verse 4, which we didn't even look at, says that smoke fills the temple, signifying his holy wrath and his holy judgment. This, this is a God that is to be revered and worshipped. And really, when this sort of awe is realized, when we know of this level of God's holiness, boy, does our sin become ever apparent before us. We 
are not holy. When our state is compared to the Holy One, the need of a complete change and Savior is just, it's almost overwhelming. And as I think about the wording in this verse again, the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding, or some versions might say is insight. It makes me think, to not have knowledge, to not have understanding, is to really miss the point of life, to miss the big picture. The truth of this word understanding is talking about understanding with huge implications, understanding to its fullest. Questions like, why do we exist? What is our purpose? Guys, I want so badly for people that I know and love and care about to get it, to come to this understanding. I'm not talking about understanding how to do a problem, an engineering problem, or understanding how the moon rotates. I'm talking about understanding with huge implications, eternal implications. And what is this understanding? It's knowledge of the Holy One. It's a fear of the Lord for who He is. That's what understanding to its utmost is. This is the gospel. Guys, this is the gospel. It's by grace and only by grace that believers begin to understand. One will understand who God really is and not who we've always perceived Him to be. We understand who we really are and not who we've always thought that we were at an elevated state. And then if you understand these two things clearly, you understand that there is a huge separation. There is a very um, bad problem, I guess you could say. God's holiness cannot allow sin, and we, prior to conversion, are composed of sin. Prior to a a miracle, our very fibers are made up of sin. From Adam on, you could even say that the blood running through our veins is sin. We are sin. Drew and Deontay, could you come up and help me for a moment with a demonstration? If you could start over here. Thank you. If you could grab this head. Right here. Thank you. Maybe we can come up in front here. As we sin, let's get a little bit more sin on there. doesn't really seem that bad here, does it? It doesn't really change a whole lot. I mean, there's already stuff all over it. Uh, Your reference point, your background, uh, it's sin. It's red, right? Red represents sin. Uh, It's not really a big deal. However, if you have a new reference point, if you have a new thing to compare to, I mean, that's a quarter of what I just put on the other one. And yet, we can all very clearly see this sin. If you were to continue to add to this, this is, you can really see it. There is a a huge significance of this. Um, And so what, what am I getting at here? Okay, if we're comparing our lives to the sin around us, if we're comparing our lives to other people, you can set that down, thanks. Um, we're going to look pretty good. It's not going to seem that bad. It's going to be like, oh, everyone's sinning around me. My sin's not maybe as bad as this other sin mark next to me. 
I'm not as bad as a lot of other people or countries. But when we compare our sin to a holy God, perfectly clean, perfectly pure, white, holy, man, it's like even the smallest sin is blatantly obvious. So I challenge, what is our reference point? What's our datum for you engineers? If it's, if it's society, then yeah, we're going to look like saints. We go to church, we come to Cross Life, we maybe even read our Bibles. But when it's the Lord, ugh. well, it's not all bad, I suppose. This is really the beauty of the cross. Um, while we cannot be with God without being holy, Christ makes us holy. Isaiah 1.18 says, though your, though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. My brother Luke reminded me in a Bible college class this morning uh, just how even when it snows out, when there's fresh snow on the ground, it's such a reminder of this verse. Though our sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. As you look out driving down 19th, there's that pasture to the right or even out south of Grace. Um, it's just a reminder that we are, Christ makes us completely clean. He makes us completely white and pure. Um, Therefore, when God sees us, He sees Christ's sinless perfection. It's incredible to me that God designed a plan where He is both just, so He upholds His holiness, He doesn't compromise His holiness, and yet also the justifier. He's also the one that, that provides the holiness for us. And so while He cannot be with sin, while sin and holiness don't go together, He still upholds his holiness and yet makes us holy at the same time. And this is really the only way that it could be so that he gets all the glory. Otherwise, we would take the glory for ourselves. But God has devised it so that he gets all the glory, rightfully so, um, Yeah, and saves mankind. It's beautiful. So I guess, guys, this is it. If you don't understand, if, you, if this doesn't uh, resonate with you, um, if you've never really surrendered, if you don't know him, if you don't fear him, do it. Do it now. You don't need to come up to the altar. You don't need to do anything special. Um, in the quietness of your own heart, later on tonight or whatever, ask the Lord to be um, your Savior. Turn from your sin and turn to Him. Well, we're not done just yet. We've still got to get to the application. And so what is our response to God's holiness? Like I said, if you don't know him, your response is know him, worship him for who he is. But many of you here do know him. Many of you here uh, do fear him. You have a relationship with Jesus. You are constantly turning from sin and turning to Christ. What, what then? Well, just uh, some initial thoughts, uh, response to his holiness. The first would be that we, are, we should continue to be more and more impressed with God. Okay, we know the seraphim are impressed with God. They they are impressed with God. Their entire existence is to worship God's holiness, to worship God for who He is. So we also ought to grow in our admiration of the Lord. The second thing that really stems from this is how we live our lives ought to be affected by this. And so, out of our admiration for God, should be obedience to Him. His holiness should bring about a fear and reverence which if it, it is at the core of our being, will change our lifestyle. It will change how we do things on a day-to-day -day basis. And if you even consider Imago Day for a moment, uh, the study that we're going through right now, um, man, 
setting aside the fact that we are doing a study, the fact that we are on a weekly basis, Thursday night, we study an attribute, and then we look at how we are to bear that image. Uh, guys, let's not forget this is God's word. Okay, what we've looked at, what we're going to look at is God's word. I don't want us to get into this monotonous uh, mindset of, okay, God's attribute, this is what I need to fix. God's attribute, this is what I need to fix. This is truth that we're looking at. Uh, yes, this Imago Day study is great, but I just want to take a moment and kind of push us on to not get stuck into this mindset of same old, same old. Um, yeah, this is God's word. Third, the third response is that we are to be holy. Okay, so first we should grow in admiration of Him. We should grow in our view of Him, our worship of Him. Stemming from that, our lives ought to change. But stemming from that, how are they to change? We're commanded to be holy. He says in His Word more than once, be holy as I am holy. So we are to grow in holiness. Um, Granted, we're not going to be perfect. The only way that we're perfect is in Christ, legally or positionally. We're perfect in Christ. And yet we are to be growing in our holiness. We are to be growing in our set-apart-from-sin-ness. Holy and being set apart from sin are really the same thing. And actually, holiness, growing in holiness, is identical to the word sanctification that we're so familiar with. Sanctification, the process of being set apart from sin, being made more like Christ, however you want to think of it, that is growing in holiness. So as we go to look at maybe some application, I just kind of want to prepare us and ask, what are you doing with your life? And I'm asking myself, too, what am I doing with my life? I don't know. What are you doing with your life, though? Um, What do you want your life to be about? I don't know where your heart is with respect to this question, uh, but I do know that we were made to glorify God. That is why we were made, was to glorify God. And the means by which He is glorified in our life is by setting His own apart from sin. That is how He is glorified. He sanctifies His children that they might be holy and therefore worship Him and honor Him with our lives. Not only is, is sanctification growing in holiness for God's glory, but it's also for our good. It's for our own good. It's, it's dual serving. It's for His glory and for our good. And so the question remains, what is your desire? Do you want to be holy? Because it's not going to happen if you don't want to be holy. If you're content where you are, if you're content, okay, I asked Jesus into my life, I did this, I whatever you're going to point back to, um, then I would challenge you to read your Bible more. Because the Bible constantly has a theme of growing uh, in Christ-likeness, of growing in, um, in being set apart from sin, in holiness. So what are some ways to grow in holiness? If you're at a place where, yes, I want to grow in holiness, yes, I want to honor the Lord more with my life, yes, I want to be set apart from sin, I'm tired of sin, what are some ways to grow in holiness? Uh, and as we close, if you turn with me to 2 Timothy, yeah. in our New Testaments, one of Paul's letters, uh, we're going to go to chapter 2. I'll start in verse 20. It says, Now in a large house... There are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, 
sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. I studied uh, quite a few passages on growing in holiness, and all of them really had the same theme. Um, There was some sort of sin to be dealt with and turned from, whether it was past sin, youthful sin, whatever, and then there was some form of turning to God, um, some form of turning from, going from sin and turning to God. And that's exactly what we see here. Just to quickly kind of paint this picture for us, um, the vessels or utensils referred to here are household items. And so the gold and silver ones would be those of like uh, drinking utensils, eating utensils, serving food um, utensils, serving platters, whatever. And these were considered of honorable use. As a utensil, that's not a bad gig, you know, um, especially when you compare it to the ones of dishonorable use. Uh, The ones of dishonorable use, uh, that wouldn't be so fun. These are things like uh, disposal baskets, garbage cans, waste baskets. You might even throw in a plunger in there. Um, the, the point is, uh, dishonorable use, as in this context, uh, were things that were not nice, I guess you could say. Um, and obviously, this comparison is uh, between utensils and humans, right? It's between utensils and people. Some people uh, are made for dishonorable use or are in a role of dishonorable use, and some are in a role of honorable use. And yet it's interesting, however, to me that it says, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself of what is dishonorable, implying one, anyone, okay, anyone can do this. It's an open call. But two, um, as I will now demonstrate that this takes work. Um, Demonstrate with words, not with actions. Um, So I want you to imagine for a, a second a trash can from a long time ago. I don't know what maybe a trash can would have looked like back then, but it was probably made out of wood or something of that sort, earthenware, I don't know. It was very old, and there was certainly no garbage liner. And so as you're putting trash in it, as you're putting garbage in it, whatever, uh, it gets full, you just empty it outside or in the back pasture, and you bring it back in. Uh, And over time, this stuff starts to build up on it. Food and gunk and who knows whatever else. Um, Things start to build up on it um, for years and years and years. In order to clean this, you'd probably have to scrub and work at it and in our day use bleach and lots of bleach. Um, just to kind of illustrate this again, uh, if you've ever seen a bathtub that's been exposed to hard water, um, <laughs> yeah, I see someone smiling. That is a chore. My mom's here and uh, might be chuckling at this because I've done this many times growing up. But uh, this hard water, the metal ions will settle out and they'll get on the sides of the bathtub and all turns this rusty orange color that's gross. And this, I'm not kidding, takes elbow grease. It is difficult. You got to throw Comet and bleach and you're in there all day just for like 20 cents or something. Uh, (laughs) It takes a lot of work though. It is a difficult thing to do. And yet what's interesting is that Paul's not talking about bathtubs. He's not talking about garbage cans. No, he's talking about our sin. While this is a call that includes everyone, it says anyone, it is not an easy call. Therefore, not everyone is going to do it. Sin in our life runs deep. Guys, it's been there for so long. Can you think of sin that has been there even possibly your entire life? This sin is 
I mean, it is part of us. It is within us. It, it's going to take a lot of work. And we so easily just grow accustomed to it being there. Just like in the same way you might get in the shower over and over again. You're just used to seeing that rustic look on the bathtub. We get so used to being unholy. We get used to being unholy. Paul goes on in verse 22. He says, Now flee from youthful lusts. What at first was maybe a general statement of uh, referring to sin, he now kind of pinpoints. He says, flee from youthful lusts. And it's curious to me that in a group of college students where the average age is potentially 20, 21, 22, um, I find this somewhat convicting. Uh, Maybe because we're in a transient and transitional phase of life. We're always moving around. I mean, we go home for Christmas, come back, go over here, traveling around. Further, we're kind of in a transition from, okay, you were a child, now you're trying, okay, we're growing up now, it's happening. We don't have a job yet, maybe, a lot of us, but, um, and yet, I got to ask the question, are we young men and women? Or are we young men and women of God? Um, Guys, this is likely the the prime of our lives physically, in regards to energy, in regards to ambition, We've got it right now. We are, we are youth, really. I mean, we are in our youth ages. Um, but what are we going to put this toward? What are we going to put our energy, our ambition, our um, even physical ability toward? And what Paul is calling us to do here is to flee youthful lusts. Not just physical desires, but yes, physical desires in terms of youthful lusts, but really all other desires that arise in a young person's heart. Thinking about I want to make a name for me. I want to get into a company and work my way up. I want to pursue power and wealth and fame and riches. And, or maybe you just want to, I just want to be average in the society's eye. I mean, even that. Guys, what are we pursuing? We're in a time of life where everything is about us. We're not tied down to anything. We're not committed. We don't have to be at a job or um, a lot of us aren't married. And we so badly want to exalt self. And I'm not, guys, I'm not speaking from a stance of being through this. I'm right here with you. I'm doing the same thing. I go to the same schools. This is a, this is a struggle. We are so arrogant at this age due to our sin that so deeply runs itself in our veins. However, as I read and as I look at God's Word and as I see what, what is true, I'm convinced that the best option for us is to pursue holiness. To pursue holiness. Now more than ever, we have the energy to learn, to read, to grow. As we, we have the energy to do things that we're not always going to have. We have the, the mind capacity. We have the resources. Um, if you even consider the churches that are in this area and the fellowship of, of a body that we have, not just in college students, yes, in college students, but also in, in older godly people and younger people, um, an MSU campus right here full of unbelievers that you can really, I mean, we have the freedom in this country to say whatever we want to say. And we are, we are young right now. He says, Flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace 
with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. Guys, as cross life, this is a pretty unique thing. There's a lot of college students here that uh, are seeking the Lord, that are um, desiring to grow, that are doing a lot of good things. But what I would maybe urge us to do is to not be content and to not stay within our group. To not stay within our group, but to use these years that we have uh, and do something. So as I close on Proverbs 9.10 again, um, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And I would ask, is your desire to glorify Him in your life by turning from sin and turning to Him? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But what are we going to do from there? What are we going to do moving forward? Would you bow, bow with me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, um, Lord, would you, would you give us strength, Father, to trust you uh, in a time when we're pulled in so many directions, God, so many things compete for our attention, our time, our effort, our energy. Um, Lord, would you remind us of what your word says is true. Father, would you make us holy, set us apart from sin. Lord, would you use this group in a radical way for your glory, God. I pray that this group would go out into the world and, and be a light, Father, that we would be unique. We would be holy among a people that are not holy, Lord. God, would you be pleased to save people at MSU? Would you be pleased to save people in Bozeman? Father, would you be pleased to use um, this body of college students as a light in their families, with their friends? Um, Father, please continue to sanctify us, Lord. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Cross Life. Feel free to share this recording with others, but please do not charge for it or alter the contents in any way. For more recordings or other information about Grace Bible Church, visit gbcmt.org.